Well, I want to start by talking about one particular story, The Soul is Not a Smithy. How would you describe the story? Uh, as longer than I intended it to be. <laughs> that, uh, a, a little kid with attention problems in school is is not attending on a very on a on a very dramatic day for him, where his teacher kind of has a psychotic breakdown. His teacher start his substitute teacher starts writing "kill them" over and over on the blackboard, and then when these kids in the fourth grade start <laughs> realizing what he's doing, that he's basically lost his marbles, they panic. Yes, but your narrator is who's reflecting back on on that time his his mind was actually elsewhere because he'd been staring out the window watching other strange stuff yeah it's weird because the narrator is partly narrating as a child and partly as an adult but mainly his big concern is how how boring and meaningless his life has been and how he's kind of missed the one really dramatic thing that that ever happened to him it's actually more interesting than that. I'm not making it sound very. <laughs> well, it's a actually fascinating story, and I think fascinating partly because it takes a, a turn somewhere else, uh, really near the end, and it, it becomes kind of a, a, about a child's fear of the adult world and what seems to be this boy's fear of becoming like his own father, who's an insurance actuary. And I'm wondering if you could read a passage from this story. I'm thinking maybe sure. starting around page 103 or so. So I should start now? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. For my own part, I had begun having nightmares about the reality of adult life as early as perhaps age seven. I knew even then that the dreams involved my father's life and job and the way he looked when he returned home from work at the end of the day. His arrival was always between 542 and 545, and it was usually I who was the first to see him come through the front door. What occurred was almost choreographic in its routine. He came in already turning in order to press the door closed behind him. He removed his hat and topcoat and hung the coat in the foyer closet, clawed his necktie loose with two fingers, took the green rubber band off of the dispatch, entered the living room, greeted my brother, and sat down with the newspaper to wait for my mother to bring him a highball. The nightmares themselves always opened with a wide-angle view of a number of men at desks in rows in a large, brightly lit room or hall. The desks were arranged in precise rows and columns like the desks of an R.B. Hayes classroom, but these were all more like the large, gray, steel desks that the teachers had at the front of the room, and there were many, many more of them, perhaps a hundred or more, each occupied by a man in suit and tie. If there were windows, I do not remember noticing them. Some of the men were older than others, but they were all obviously adults, people who drove and applied for insurance coverage and had highballs while they read the paper before dinner. The nightmare's room was at least the size of a soccer or flag football field. It was utterly silent and had a large clock on each wall. It was also very bright. In the foyer, Turning from the front door while his left hand rose to remove his hat, my father's eyes appeared lightless and dead, empty of everything we associated with his real personality. He was a kind, decent, ordinary-looking man. His voice was deeply pitched but not resonant. Soft-spoken, he had a sense of humor that kept his natural reserve from seeming remote or aloof. Even when my brother and I were small, We were aware that he spent more time with us and took the trouble to show us that we were important to him a good deal more than most fathers of that era did. It was many years before I had any real idea of how our mother felt about him. 
The foyer was directly off the living room where the piano was, and at that time I often read or played with my trucks outside of kicking range beneath the piano while my brother practiced his Hannons, and I was often the first to register the sound of my father's key in the front door. It took only four steps and a brief sock slide into the foyer to be able to see him first as he entered on a wave of outside air. I remember the foyer as dim and cold and smelling of the coat closet, the bulk of which was filled with my mother's different coats and matching gloves. The front door was heavy and difficult to open and close, as if the foyer were somehow pressurized. The door had a small, diamond-shaped window in the center, though we later moved before I was ever tall enough to see out of it. He had to put his side into the door somewhat in order to make it close all the way, and I would not see his face until he turned to remove his hat and coat. But I can recall that the angle of his shoulders as he leaned into the door had the same quality as his eyes. I could not convey this quality now and most assuredly couldn't have then, but I know that it helped inform the nightmares. His face was not at all like this on weekends off. It is in hindsight that I believe the dreams to have been about adult life. At the time, I knew only their terror. Much of the difficulty they complained of in getting me to lie down and go to sleep at night was due to these dreams. Nor could it always have been dusk at 542, though that is what I recall its being, and the inrush of outside air he brought with him as cold and scented with burnt leaves and the sad way the street smelled at twilight, when all of the houses became the same color and all of their porch lights came on like bulwarks against something without name. His eyes, when he turned from the door, didn't scare me, but the feeling was somehow related to being scared. Often I still had a truck in my hand. His hat went on the hat rack, his coat shouldered out of, then the coat was folded over his left arm, the closet opened with his right hand, the coat transferred to that hand while the third wooden coat hanger from the left is removed with his left hand. There was something about this routine that cast shadows down deep in parts of me I could not access on my own. I knew something of boredom by then, of course, at Hayes and Riverside, or on Sunday afternoons when there was nothing to do, the fidgety type of childhood boredom that is more like worry than despair. But I do not believe I consciously connected the way my father looked at night with the far different and deeper soul-level boredom of his job, which I knew was actuarial because in second grade everybody in Mrs. Claymore's homeroom had had to give a short presentation on what our father's profession was. I knew that insurance was protection that adults applied for in case of risk, and I knew that it had numbers in it because of the documents that were visible in his briefcase when I got to pop its latches and open it for him. And my brother and I had had the building that housed the insurance company's headquarters, and my father's tiny window in its face pointed out to us by our mother from the car. But the actual specifics of his job were always vague. And they remained so for many years. Looking back, I suspect that there was something of a cover-your-eyes-and-stop-your-ears quality to my lack of curiosity about just what my father had to do all day. I can remember certain exciting narrative tableau based around the competitive, almost primitive connotations of the word breadwinner, which had been Mrs. Claymore's blanket term for our father's occupations. But I do not believe I knew or could even imagine, as a child, that for almost 30 years of 51 weeks a year, my father sat all day at a metal desk in a silent, fluorescent-lit room, 
reading forms and making calculations and filling out further forms on the results of those calculations, breaking only occasionally to answer his telephone or meet with other actuaries in other bright, quiet rooms. With only a small and sunless north window that looked out on other small office windows in other gray buildings. The nightmares were vivid and powerful, but they were not the kind from which you wake up crying out and then have to try to explain to your mother when she comes what the dream w- when she comes what the dream was about so that she could reassure you that there was nothing like what you just dreamed in the real world. That's wonderful. Thank you. So evocative. And, you know, I have to say, when I first read that passage, it, it seemed like something right out of Kafka, sort of the nightmare quality of, of the ordinary world. Does that have any resonance well, no, for it's you? A, it's a weird story because the story started out really surreal, and then the, parts of this are actually the climax, but the climax is much more sort of plain, everyday, realistic than surreal. So it sort of ended up kind of like inverted Kafka for me. Hmm. It's a very strange, very strange piece, I think. Did you have that kind of dread when you were a kid? I think I I think in a in a country where we have it as easy as we do, one of our big dread vectors is boredom. And I think um I think the I think little edges of despair and soul level boredom appear in things like homework or particularly dry classroom stuff. I can remember the incredible soaring relief of of when certain teachers would say we were going to watch a movie in grade school. And it wasn't just a hedonistic, oh, we're going to have fun. It was a relief from some kind of terrible, terrible burden, I thought. So I don't know, maybe. maybe. Did you you sort of look at what your parents were doing or your father in particular and think, oh, my God, I don't want to become like that? I don't know. I don't know that it has so I mean both my parents were teachers so I, they always got pale and haunted looking when there were big stacks of papers to grade <laughs> but I think a lot of this has more to do with 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 friends parents and friends who've become kind of office workers and um um I, I just got interested in the reality of boredom which is something that I think is a is a is a kind of hugely important problem and yet none of us talk about it because we all act like it's just sort of something that we have to get through which I suppose we do. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny because as I was reading that, I was sort of thinking back to my own childhood. And my father was a professor and he would, um, after dinner, he would typically go on up into his study, close the door. And I don't know what he did. But I just I remember thinking when I was pretty little that this doesn't seem like fun to have to sort of do this night after night. And I didn't want to become like that. Um, of course, I sort of have become like that because, you know, I go home and, you know, I have my own homework as well. But uh, I just, I'm, I'm wondering if that resonated at all for you. I know, I mean, I, I one of my, one of my little family stories that mom always tells is that, is that on the day in second grade when we all had to talk about what our fathers did for a living, I said my father didn't do anything for a living. He just stayed home and wrote on yellow paper. <laughs> Because he was a he was a professor too, I know, I I know that part of what interested me in the story was what was trying to remember what I thought about what my parents did when I was a child, because when you're a child, I don't think you're aware of how incredibly easy you have it. Right, you have your own problems and you have your own burdens and chores and things you have to do. But yeah, I think I think my intuitions were very much like yours. I think when they went into these quiet rooms and had to do things that it wasn't obvious they wanted to do. Um, I think there was a part of me that 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 felt that something terrible was coming. Mm-hmm. You know, but also, of course, now that we're now that we're putatively grown up, there's also a lot of really really interesting stuff. And sometimes you sit in 
quiet rooms and do a lot of drudgery and at the end of it is it is a surprise or something very rewarding or a feeling of fulfillment and well that's the life of a writer isn't it yeah but it's also probably the life of a radio host and 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 probably in many cases the life of office workers whom who who we think of as as having very boring dry jobs probably it's all jobs are the same and they're filled with horrible boredom and despair and quiet little bits of fulfillment that are very hard to tell anybody else about. You know what I find? No, it's just a guess. Yeah. You know what I find interesting about what we've been talking about and also the passage you just read is the your, your public image as a writer is a, you're you're typically described as one of the leading figures of the the postmodern hip ironic generation of writers now in their 30s and early 40s. But I read somewhere that that you really think of yourself as a realist. Well, except most, most, you know, um, these 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 various classifications are important for critics, right? You have to form, you have to form different things into groups, or else you have to talk about a trillion different particulars. I don't know very many writers who don't think of themselves as realists, um, in terms of trying to convey the way stuff tastes and feels, sort of to you. Um, This is a good example of a story where – I mean a lot of stuff that's like capital R uh, realism just seems to me somewhat hokey because obviously realism is an illusion of realism and um, the idea that small banal details are somehow more real or authentic than large or strange details always seemed to me just a little bit crude. But this this was an interesting piece to write because during the real payoff part of it, it did become extremely realistic and small – and filled with banal details. The the truth of the matter is, is when you're in an interview, you have to say all kinds of stuff. Um, I don't really know what I am, and I don't think very many writers have any idea what they are. I'm you just try to do stuff that feels alive to you. Yeah. You know? Well, I'm wondering about, about for for particularly people of our generation. I th- I think we're roughly around the same age, both in our early 40s. Um, whether there's a certain cultural landscape that that you feel most compelled to write about. I know that when I was in graduate school, those of us who wrote very much about what what used to be called pop culture or advertising or television were really were really scorned by our older professors who saw that stuff as kind of vapid and banal um, and lacking a kind of platonic timelessness. And I remember it was a really big it was a really big source of conflict because in lots of ways we just didn't get what they were saying. I mean, this was. This was this was our world and our reality the same way you know the romantics world was trees and babbling brooks and and mountains and blue skies. So I think probably if there's yeah I'm 42. If there's something that's distinctive about our generation is that we've been steeped in media and marketing since the time we were very very small and it's kind of a grand experiment because no other generation in the history of the world you know has 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 been that mediated. What implications that has, I don't know, but I know it. I know it affects what what seems urgent and worth writing about, and and what kind of feels real in my head when I'm working on it. Isn't that also complicated, though, because the danger of of writing about what's I don't know what you'd call mass culture or pop culture is that it's going to seem shallow. In fact, you you wrote an essay about this some years back uh, that the risk of of just being clever, and I, I guess it's. How do you say something original about this world that in, in so many ways is really pretty shallow? Well, except – I mean the, the the way to answer is with a platitude, but some platitudes are kind of deep. You know, for me, art art that's alive and urgent is art 
that's about what it is to be a human being. And whether one is a human being in times of enormous profundity and depth and challenge or one is trying to be a human being in times of what appears to be shallow and commercial and materialistic really isn't isn't all that relevant to the deeper picture. Uh, I'm sorry, to the deeper project. The deeper project is is what is it to be human? There's there there are certain paradoxes and and there are certain hazards involved. I think in writing about this world because a lot of commercial culture is itself based on kinds of art, um, at least sort of pop art, and it can be it can get. There's the danger of being sucked into it. Um, and simply trying, for instance, to do something that seems very hip and clever and thinking the job has been done then. Um, I've certainly done stuff like that and realized only later with horror um, that what I did was in fact just kind of regurgitated the same stuff that I've been hearing since I was four or five. There's another side to it, though, is that I think part of this division into, you know, postmodern experimentalists and realists, I think at least for people like me, I'm 42 and I grew up, I don't know how many after-school specials and Hallmark Network things <laughs> I've seen. A lot of a lot of what's quote-unquote realistic, conventionally realistic, ends up seeming hokey to me. The resolutions seem contrived. Um, uh, everything seems a little too convenient um, and, and platitude-ish. And, and the ultimate goal of it is to sell me something. And there's a part of me, I think, that re- that recoils from that, and that's a problem because some realistic stuff really is alive and urgent. But but the model and the form has been so exhaustively mined for commercial reasons that I think, um, I, I think for a lot of us about our age, we're looking we're looking for different, less commercial forms in which to talk about kind of the urgent, moving stuff. I don't know whether that makes any sense, mm-hmm. but I'm. That, that that's pretty much the truth the way I see it. Yeah. Well, I think the other piece of that is a lot of this commercial world, I mean, whether it's movies or, I don't know, advertising even, you know, it's really, it's pretty compelling. You know, it's entertaining. Yeah. And and I, I suppose from a writer's perspective, you might want to feel like if you're going to write about this stuff, you have to be entertaining too. Yeah. To, well, there's that danger. The other danger is kind of to, to reprise an early 20th century painting thing where once there was photography, the interest in you know, mimesis and painting really kind of disappeared and everything got really abstract. It's a real problem. I, I don't have a TV anymore, but you know, when, I, when I'm doing something like this and I'm on the road, I watch TV in hotels and I'm appalled by how good the commercials have gotten. <laughs> they're fascinating. They're funny. They're hip. They've got trunk lines into my, you know, high school level anxieties and desires in a way that the commercials I grew up with never did. You know, what what it is is a lot of them are the hip, cynical, cool people I went to college feeling intimidated by who are now making $2 million a year figuring out how to do this stuff. And they've gotten very, very good at it. Hmm. Well, I have to ask you about another one of your stories, uh, The Suffering Channel, which, among other things, deals with a, a new kind of reality TV show that, that shows real-life episodes of torture and murder and rape and, and all of that. Is that sort of your your vision of <laughs> what might happen in some you know, dystopian future? I don't, I, I don't know that it's that. I think to the extent that I understand reality TV, it has a certain logic and it's not hard to take that logic kind of to its extreme. I, I, I think celebrity autopsy, um, while childhood friends of the celebrities sit around talking about whether or not whether or not the celebrity was a good person while his or her organs are being excised would be kind of the terminus of that logic. But um, the question is how far we go. The inhibition of shame, 
on the part on, on the part both of the contestants and on the part of the people who put together the show. At at some point, people have figured out that even if viewers are sneering or talking about in what poor taste stuff is, they're still watching, and that the key is to get people to watch, and that that's what's remunerative. And and I think once we lost that, once we lost that shame hobble, <laughs> um, um, it only time will tell how far we go. Hmm. Now your essays and your fiction uh, are famous for for various things for for their footnotes for for various digressions on all kinds of uh, sort of odd bits of information, uh, obscure bits of science and philosophy. Um, are you just drawn to this kind of thing? I mean, do you just have a hunger to to know about the world? I don't know if it's that so much as, you know, a lot of it, a, a lot of it really does come back to trying to do something that feels real to me. And, and I don't really know what the interior of anybody else is like. I often feel very fragmented and as if, as if I have a symphony of different <laughs> voices and voiceovers and factoids going on all the time and digressions on digressions on digressions. And um, I, I, know, I know that people who don't much care for my stuff see a lot of the stuff as just sort of vomiting it out. <laughs> um, that, that's at least my intent. What's hard is to, 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 to seem very digressive and bent in on yourself and Diffracted, and yet also have there be patterns and significances about it, um, and it takes a lot of drafts. Um, but it probably comes out just looking like, you know, a, a manic mad monologue or something. I don't know that I'm more interested in trivia or factoids than anybody else. I know that they, I know that they sort of bounce around in my head an awful lot. I came across a quote from the novelist Zadie Smith who said, it's not the writer's job to tell us how somebody felt about something. It's to tell us how the world works. Do you agree with that? Well, what you've got there is a very clever statement on one side of this division between um, capital R realism and something more experimental or postmodern with a kind of social agenda. Probably if you backed me into a tight corner, what I'd say is ultimately there's no difference between those two things, um, although they're, they're, they're different as philosophies via which to proceed in the project. But I think if you could, if you could, articulate, if you could articulate well enough what something felt like to somebody, you would have a, a fantastic template for how the world worked. That might be a kind of solipsistic view, but I, th- I sort of think it's mine. Hmm. But also, Zadie is very clever in what she calls a wind-up merchant, and I think part of her saying that is just to get people revved up. <laughs> but you're also suggesting I mean, it's sort of the way science is going that, I mean, as as the study of consciousness uh, gets more and more complicated, but, I mean, to some degree, it's all in our mind anyway. I mean, how we perceive the world, so maybe there isn't really this distinction between the world out there and and how wh- how we make sense of it in our own minds. Yeah, but the other tricky thing is that the only way we can talk to each other about this is with language. And in language, built in is the idea of this distinction. You just presented to me, so maybe there is nothing outside the mind. If there is nothing outside the mind, it's really not a very big deal that there isn't. But but when we talk to each other about about it, there automatically becomes a big deal. So l- language and the, and the way we have to communicate with each other and process the world through words, I think is the wild card in all this. And I don't totally understand it, but so the answer just kind of tails off, I'm afraid. <laughs> you, yeah. were a, you were a philosophy student at one point, weren't you? I was. 
does that impulse still stay with you? Oh, I think at the time that I was studying philosophy, it was the beginning of the infiltration by kind of continental deconstruction on analytic philosophy, and the world was full of recursion and involution and things bending back on themselves and various various incarnations of Gödel's proof. And I think some of that kind of affected me at a spinal level. I really like recursions, and I really like contradictions and paradoxes and statements that kind of negate themselves in the middle. But I think at at this point in my life, it seems to me to be more of a tick than anything really all that important. Hmm. I mentioned this essay that you wrote, I think it was back in 1993, about writing and sort of what, what various fiction writers are up to. And one point you made is that irony tyrannizes us. So the implicit message of irony is, I don't really mean what I'm saying. And, and, and you went on to suggest that the next generation of rebel writers might ditch irony in favor of sincerity, and I, I think I'm quoting here, who treat plain old untrendy human troubles and emotions with reverence and conviction, who eschew self-consciousness and hip fatigue. And I guess... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that a critique of, of your own kind of writing? I don't. I don't know that it's that. I mean, the thing. The thing even sounds dated to me now. I. I think it's less that than an articulation of the thing you were asking me about before. Is, you know, what is it like to be working really hard on the stuff at age forty-two, having been marketed to all your life, um, and uh, how does one? I mean, because you want your art to be hip and seem cool to people. You want people to, to like the stuff. But a great deal of what passes for hip or cool is now highly, highly commercially driven. Um, and I'll, I'll, you know, it, and some of it, some of it, I think is important art. I think The Simpsons is important art. Um, on the other hand, it's also, in in my opinion, relentlessly um, sort of corrosive to the soul, and everything is parodied, and everything is ridiculous. And um, maybe I'm old, but for my part, I can be steeped in about an hour of it, and then I sort of have to walk away and look at a flower or something. Um, I think if there's if there's something to be talked about, that thing is this weird conflict between what my girlfriend calls the inner sap, you know, the the part of us that can really wholeheartedly weep at stuff, and the part of us that has to live in a world of smart, jaded, sophisticated people and wants very much to be taken seriously by those people. I don't know that it's that irony tyrannizes us, but 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 the fashions that are so easy to criticize but are so incredibly powerful and authentic seeming when we're inside them tyrannize us. I don't know that it's ever been any different. Can that you... probably makes absolutely no sense. No, it actually makes total... That was an, <laughs> my experiment at telling the truth. <laughs> it makes total sense. But can you hold those two impulses uh, simultaneously? No, but I, th- I, th- I think, I think um, my personal opinion and what I tell my students is that if, if there's suffering involved in art or what or, or or however you want to say it, right now this is the form of the suffering, is to be the paddle, the battleground for the war between those two kind of impulses, neither of which are stupid, neither of which are wrong, but it's not at all clear to me how, how, how to marry them. And I don't think it's been at all clear since about the 1950s. And I, I just think it's where we're at. Hmm. Is that what you're trying to do in your fiction, to sort of get at those two impulses within the same work, the same, the same story? 
for the purposes of this conversation, I'll say yes. But but sitting <laughs> sitting in the bright, quiet room in front of the paper, it's much more. It's much more. Oh, does this does this make me want to throw up? Does this seem real? Is this the sort of thing the person would say? It's much more kind of boneheaded and practical than that. Hmm. You realize this, right? There's something very artificial about once the book's all through galleys, and you know now I'm engaging in critical discourse about it. I might be right, but it's very different than what it's like actually to do the things. Sure. That makes total sense. The stuff that's in my mind as I'm doing it is far less sophisticated than this.